Hello, Better Than Shakespeareans, and welcome to another episode of Better Than Shakespeare. On today's program, Danny and I discuss Carol Churchill's play Mad Forest, which looks at the uh, daily life under the Ceausescu regime in Romania, and then the protest movement against that regime, and then the uncertain aftermath of uh, the fall of that regime. Uh, It was written literally while the events were happening. Um, She went to Romania and interviewed people, and those interviews became kind of the core of uh, her material on this. And, you know, it's a a really interesting play. As a a history play, it's very kind of, uh, you know, fractured and uh, and fragmented um, in a way trying to uh, kind of simulate the feeling of, of being in a revolutionary upheaval where... You don't know who to trust, and um, and you've been brought up in this kind of culture of secrecy and suspicion. Um, I think it's great. I, I love Carol Churchill, as you can probably tell by this point. Uh, and I think this is uh, a very interesting, though I would say probably somewhat underread play by her. I hope this podcast will encourage you to read it if you haven't read it already. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Better Than Shakespeare. I'm Andy Boyd. And I'm Danny Erickson. And today we are continuing our uh, Churchill series. Maybe it'll never end. Maybe we'll just do Churchill plays till we die. There are probably enough of them. She had better keep writing them if she wants to keep going on. Given the frequency with which she writes plays and the infrequency with which we we record podcast episodes, we may be able to run this out for the rest of our God given lives. Listen, it's a good it's a good business. So this play, Mad Forest, is called A Play from Romania, and um, it's it's kind of about the fall of the Chikesco. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Chikesco, Chikesco, uh, Koshescu. Koshescu regime in Romania. We don't speak uh, Romanian, either of us. Yeah, I think that'll be clear. Yeah, um, for sure. I think if it's not already. And one of the things I didn't realize about this is that she wrote this play like while this uprising was going on. It's wild. It's really wild. I, I, I've, I've talked about how impressed I was uh, when. M.A. Césaire wrote a play responding to the consequences of current events, like making suppositions about what actors had been feeling and thinking five years after the uh, overthrow of Lumumba in the Congo. But this and this does, isn't making uh, claims about what U.S. Uh, ambassadors had been doing at this point, but really quite explicit and open about the contradictions of the government that gets put in place of Kosciuszko. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just to give an example, Chikescu, what is it, Kikescu? Uh Let's say Kosciuszko. Kosciuszko. So Kosciuszko gets uh, 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 killed uh, on Christmas Day, and then Carol Churchill starts writing the play in mid-January. Um, the 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 first election um, after uh, Kuchescu dies. On Wikipedia, Ceausescu. 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 We're going to leave all this in. Uh, The first elections after that are in late January, and then she goes to Romania to do research uh, for four days. Uh, in March. So, so it's really, she's really kind of, you know, uh, responding to these events as they're happening. It's not really a retrospective look. It's, yeah. it's as close to on the ground reporting as we playwrights tend to get. Man. And it, there are some very bleak aspects in this play. And I, I'm, I'm worried about like, did she have a fight with someone in these four days? also reading news reporting that was going on yeah and it's an interesting play because you know this is the time when people had very sort of uh starry-eyed optimistic visions of what 
the post-communist transition would look like in Eastern Europe. And Churchill's a socialist, right? So I feel like she has a little bit more, even though she's, you know, not not a communist and I don't think has ever been a member of the party, uh, she has a little bit more of a, of a skepticism, I think, about what are the possible outcomes of, of a post-communist transition than, you know, the kind of boosters of the West. Yeah. One interesting thing here, I, I have a... Uh... Uh, one of my former roommates ended up spending some time in Estonia and he expressed uh, something that we see a little bit in this play, which is that a uh, communist has become a term uh, not uh, like, outside of its ideological valences for just something old fashioned. Mm -hmm. Like that outfit is totally communist. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which I quite like. Yeah. Uh, which, of course, is, you know, not an ideologically neutral happenstance of history and language. But there's also, in a lot of places in Eastern Europe, a significant nostalgia for elements of the communist period. Sure. Um, um, you know, now mostly among older people because it's been you know, more than 30 years, but sure. Just as with, uh, so many people in our generation, it can be hard to convince people that, uh, a union is a useful thing because there can be very little actual lived memory of a time when, I don't know, even 30% of people around you could be in a union mm -hmm. much easier. Of course, when, uh, every Starbucks is unionizing, which fucking rules. Hell fucking yeah. That's been that's uh been a very tiny uh but real positive uh trend in American industry over the last year. And I'm very nervous for all the Starbucks baristas. Yeah. Um I heard a great interview on the dig that was one of the Starbucks organizers and Chris Smalls. And oh, yeah. um Chris Smalls could not have been more enthusiastic and supportive of what they were doing. He yes. was like, I think what you guys are doing is great. Keep it up. Keep up the fight, That's you know? Amazing. And it's like, I'm, I'm at this point, you know, just thoroughly convinced that the people on Twitter being like baristas are not real, real workers uh, are, are just CIA sock puppet it, accounts. It, because it, it's the most plausible explanation, but we should give like no reason to accuse specific people about it, but it's just right. like, Oh, no, no, this is just designed to be um, trying to force a caste distinction into the workers' yeah. movement. It's also just like, what is the what is the like suggested strategy coming out of that analysis? Like, don't support the Starbucks union? You know, uh, think, like, what I are we supposed to... The point is to be focusing our limited resources on uh, factories in Ohio. Great. Of which I'm pretty sure there are a lot. Yeah, I mean, I probably more. I don't know. I, it, I'd be interested to see like the states in which there are more people who work at Starbucks than work in factories. There are probably yeah, several. Uh, yes. Several. Yeah. Also, yeah. there's the wonderful thing that I don't know. This isn't uh, 1970. There's a pretty big service sector in the global south too. Yeah. Yeah. And you know. Uh, you know, a group of people who are pretty surprisingly aware of the fact that they are connected to exploitation in the global South and should be considering that as they engage in labor actions in uh, privileged North American cities, uh, Starbucks workers. Yeah. Yeah. They're dealing with coffee. They're like, don't, they're not reading long histories of the commodity of that, uh, the history of that commodity. But uh, but they're aware of it. And I've seen some very wonderful uh, speeches that Starbucks workers have made on the need to be tying anti-imperialism to labor actions in the North. It's crazy that there were like whole coups because of banana prices. Yes. And I wonder if we'd had a more like enlightened 
uh, government if they'd been like, hey, guess what? So those bananas, they're going to be a little bit more expensive because uh, the country that we get them from has outlawed uh, child slavery. I've got, so, a, I've got a lot of... Are we okay with this? We're going to pay a little bit more for bananas, but there won't be slavery bananas. Like, I wonder if people would have gone with that. If like, that is given not that a hard argument to make. There are like... Tough. I gotta think some people would have been behind it, you know. I think it's like it's a tougher sale to say, um, "Hey, uh, all these clothes that you've been able to buy for twenty dollars, uh, actually, you're gonna have to buy them at the price of, uh, you know, what it costs to make it while providing livable conditions in the factories. Uh, mm-hmm. It's gonna be about sixty dollars minimum." Yeah, yeah, but like you get the benefit that you know you're not profiting from child uh, indentured servants. I A lot of people, and you know, you as long as uh, the workers' wages also go up, because that's another fun thing. Right. Like, that's the deal that we've gotten for the last 60, 70 years of American total hegemony, is that Americans have been able to uh, have their wages not rise, but what benefits they get are just by lowering the prices of the commodities they need to get through the day without, you know, living nude and in the rain. Mm-hmm. So uh, Drew Barrymore says you should never lose an opportunity to go out into the rain. So maybe Listen, we should she's, that. She, she's cringe and I fully support her right to be. I've heard that she had a hard childhood. She's had a really fucking tough life. I wouldn't I wouldn't wish being a child star on just about anybody. Her last name is also Barrymore. Like, no, like and it's, there, you know, uh, you know it's hard for me to muster up too much for her. I'm not saying that they're the first person that we should be designing any social uh revolution toward, but yeah. it's a hard life. Yeah. It seems bad. I think we should just have like uh, no more child stars. And if we have to have a child in a movie, they should just be played by like a kind of short, weird looking adult. <laughs> uh, that, that, that that sounds like a, a pretty fun jobs program for our, for a couple of our weird friends. And I, I support yeah. it. I have, a, I have a friend who I just keep on casting in younger and younger roles. And That's really funny. About, 22 or 23 and you know i, I was wondering i, I was wondering I saw, I, saw, I saw like two two points in that it was funny yeah and uh, i'm sort of she's, I, she's I very keep good saying, at playing a kid she's, to be she's great she's great um and, and i keep being like i, I swear i'm gonna write a, a real adult big lady role for you one of these days but just <laughs> would you be a child one more time um she's great it's okay um so let's 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 get into this let's play. play. Um, and like, I think we should recognize that we're going to be critical, probably, of the Romanian state as it has developed since and the Eastern European go. Uh, yeah, the the project of Eastern European democracy is going well, Andy. Yeah, I'm because, a socialist. Like, a lot which of people say support the government. A lot of people say that uh, you know, in these times of. I don't know, rampant corruption uh, that dwarfs anything under the uh, Ceausescu government that we need to remember that at least abortion is legalized in uh, Romania. (laughs) Yeah. And that's that's just like, you know, liberal freedoms are available now. And And that it it is possible. It is possible now for any... Uh, any lumberyard to go out and strip mine all of the national forests. That wasn't possible under the Romanian Communist Party. Okay? Yeah. This is freedom. This is freedom, and uh, honestly, we owe our beautiful national forests to IKEA, the Swedish manufacturing furniture plants, because they're, they're providing us such cheap cheap furniture and we should not ask how it's so uh inexpensive that would be rude it blew my mind when somebody called it ikea for the first time it's, it's, it it's pretty fun it's pretty fun i was like are you 
so there's Fucking a fun there's a there's a fun epigraph to this play mad forest by carol churchill yeah. on the plain where bucharest now stands there used to be a large forest crossed by small muddy streams it could only be crossed on foot and was impenetrable for the foreigner, foreigner who did not know the paths the horsemen of the steppe were compelled to go round it and this difficulty which irked them so is shown by the name Teliorman, Mad Forest, a concise history of Romania, Otetea and Mackenzie. Great. Um, one of the things I think is interesting about this play is the structure of it uh, in kind of classic Carol Churchill fashion. It uh, is in sort of three long sections that are all completely different from one another and uh, are written according to sort of completely different stylistic parameters uh, just to keep it spicy, keep it interesting. Sure. Um, The first sequence are these sort of short vignette scenes, many of them silent, kind of depicting, or at least, you know, without dialogue, kind of depicting um, everyday life under uh, communism, uh, you know, people waiting in food queues while uh, quietly uh, hoping for the fall of the government, um, you know, talks about how the the educational world and the churches are complicit in the regime. Um, A wonderful scene about uh, just three friends, three radical friends telling jokes about the great leader Ceausescu, uh, where he is only referred to as he. That even in a conversation between three friends in private, they still uh, do not. F- it is not safe to mention the name. It, uh, is it mentioned at any point um, in the play? Yes, I think it is. Cool. I th- I think I think one of the people waiting in line says, "Down with Ceausescu." Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, you you probably want to say yeah, it at least does. once early in the play. That makes sense. Yeah, scene scene five. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Oh, I thought we could maybe read uh, scene six. Um, Yes, yeah. Which is a a great dialogue where only one character talks. (laughs) And these scenes are formatted uh, or sort of headed with these phrases like they're from a Romanian to English phrase book. This one is, uh, two men are sitting in the sun. So maybe I'll read Securitate and you can read the uh, stage directions. Sure. And uh, it's just because it's fun. As if an English tourist, first in Romanian, then in English, and again in Romanian, is reading from a phrase book. So, Doi oameni stau la soare. Two men are sitting in the sun. Doi oameni stau la soare. Bogdan and a securitate man. Do you love your country? Bogdan nods. And how do you show it? Bogdan you love your bugs- country. Mm. You love your country. How do you show it? Bogdan is about to speak. He stops. He is about to speak. You encourage your daughter to marry an American. No. She defies you. Your daughter was trained as a primary school teacher. She can no longer be employed. Romania has wasted resources that could have benefited a young woman with a sense of duty. I understand your wife works as a tram driver and has recently been transferred to a depot in the south of the city, which doubles the time she has to travel to work. You are an electrician. You have been a foreman for some time, but alas, no longer. Your son is an engineer and is so far doing well. Your other daughter is a nurse. So far, there is nothing against her except her sister. I'm sure you are eager to show that your family are patriots. Bogdan looks away. When they know your daughter wants to marry an American, people may confide their own shameful secrets. They may mistakenly think you are someone who has sympathy with foreign regimes. Your other children may make undesirable friends who think they're prepared, who think you're prepared to listen to what they say. They will be right. You will listen. Bogdan is about to say something, but doesn't. What? Your colleagues will know you have been demoted and will wrongly suppose that you are short of money. As a patriot, you may not have noticed how anyone out of favor attracts the friendship of irresponsible, bitter people who feel slighted. Be friendly. 
What a beautiful day. What a beautiful country. Bogdan looks at him. You will make a report once a week. Um, I think this is such a great little scene um, that, that really kind of shows how people became complicit in the regime, not out of any, you know, inhuman cowardice, but out of very simple everyday human cowardice, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> that it's, it's, it's the same reason, you know, people wouldn't speak up about their, you know, left-wing political views at work today. You don't want to piss off your boss and, you know, lose your job yeah. or get a worse assignment or whatever it is. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to be seen as a malingerer. Um, you don't speak up when one of your relatives is making fun of a, I don't know, a gay kid because, oh, well, uh, let's just, let's just talk about it. Let's not worry about it. Well, we're only here for Thanksgiving another couple of days. We're fine. Yeah. We'll get through it. Uh, Julia Kusteva, um, the uh, philosopher, was, I believe, born, so Bulga- a Bulgarian philosopher. Uh, a few years back, uh, there were some news stories after looking in the archives that found that she had been uh, collaborating with the secret police. And there was a file where she had been informing. And her defense that I honestly kind of believe was that, oh my God, I actually didn't remember this. That she had just so completely blocked it out or it had been so completely part of the rhythm of daily life that she did not recall that she had informed in the way that Bogdan is uh, convinced to, it seems. Wow. It's kind of crazy too, how many people, I mean, some of them we found out about before the fall of communism, yeah. like um, uh, Lech Walesa, uh, the, the president of solidarity had been an informant and, and yeah. that was leaked by the Polish state as an attempt to discredit solidarity. Um but, you know, I mean, it, it varied country by country, but I think something like a third of all people in uh, East Germany had a Stasi file on them. So it was really, you know, incredibly widespread. It was it was kind of just part of the culture um, yeah. or became that it became normalized to such a degree that it's it's hard to imagine really in the United States. Um, you know, I mean, in a civilized country, we have our machines do that for us. OK, <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, you know, but that's, a, that's, the, yeah, that is, that is part of, I, I think it's, I think that's true, but I think it's, I think that's a little too simplistic because it's not the point of having informants isn't just to get information. Yes. Right. Like it's also to make a population that is complicit with the state. Right. Yeah. Um, and in that way, it's like, you can't have machines do that for you. Like it would be useful even if you, even if you even if the Romanian state had actually had listening devices in every room and on every park bench and on every, uh, you know, subway car, it would still be useful to have informants because then you, you know, you prevent people from speaking out because, you know, they, they know that you have dirt on them as the state. So, you know, I, I, I hate to be too Foucauldian about it, but you know, the production of knowledge and the production of power are always mutually reinforcing. But what if we put a machine on all the what if, what if we put a gun on all the machines? That that'd be cool. We, now that is one innovation we actually are doing. Did you see this video of the Boston Dynamics dog with a gun on it? The, the one that like for the last uh, I don't know two years there have been videos just of the look at this little dog robot dancing, <laughs> and they've just been slowly getting more sinister. And the people who have been pointing out, hey, this could be really bad. Uh, have been getting more and more correct as they start being able to carry boxes in a warehouse. Uh, and then the most recent one, just hopping around using the same motion that they, when they were dancing, but this time they're shooting a rifle off into the off into an empty field. Yeah. I will say, uh, you know, people have, have said this about that, like that not so cute now that it has a gun, but at least the reaction I've seen on social media for the whole time has been like, holy fucking shit. I hate this robot dog. Yes. You know, yeah, to, the, to uh, the great credit of my oh friends. My oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It's not good news. It's not good news. Let the robots develop themselves. I haven't seen Terminator. I don't know <laughs> what happens when you do that, but I think it'll be safe. 
Yeah, it'll be good. Um, are there any other scenes from that first act you want to read? I would read? read the scene with the angel, number nine. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it didn't... The, very little of the play is, I don't know, magic realism. Like, like a lot of it is just very grounded scenes between largely, in the, at least in the first and the third act, between two uh, families. One a little mm-hmm. wealthier than the other, but both of them kind of normal, non-administrative elites. But then we have a scene with an angel and a priest. And it starts, Cerul est albastru. The sky is blue. Cerul est albastru. Don't be ashamed, the angel says. When people come to church, they are free. Even if they know there are securitate in church with them, even if some churches are demolished, so long as there are some churches standing, even if you say, Ceausescu, Ceausescu, because the Romanian church is a church of freedom. Not outer freedom, of course, but inner freedom. The priest sits gazing at the angel. This is so sweet, like like looking at the color blue, like looking at the sky when you're a child lying on your back. You stare out at the blue, but you're going in further and further in from the world. That's what it's like knowing I can talk to you. Someone says something, you say something back. You're called to a police station. That happened to my brother. So it's not safe to go out to people, and when you can't go out, sometimes you find you can't go in. I'm afraid to go inside myself. Perhaps there's nothing there. I just keep still. But I can talk to you. No one's ever known an angel work for the Securitate. I go out into the blue, and I sink down and down inside myself. And yes, then I am free inside. I can fly about in that blue. That is what the church can give people. They can fly about inside in that blue. So when the Romanian church writes a letter to the other Christian churches, apologizing for not taking a stand. Don't talk about it. I just managed to forget. Don't be ashamed. There was no need for them to write the letter because there's no question of taking a stand. It's not the job of the church to... Everyone will think we're cowards. No, no, no. Flying about in the blue. Yes. Yes. You've never been political? Very little. The Iron Guard used to be rather charming and called themselves the League of the Archangel Michael and carried my picture about. They had lovely processions, so I dabbled. But they were fascists. They were mystical. The Iron Guard threw Jews out of windows in 37. My father remembers it. He shouted and they beat him up. Politics, you see, their politics weren't very pleasant. I try to keep clear of the political side. You should do the same. I don't trust you anymore. That's a pity. Who else can you trust? Would you rather feel ashamed? Or are you going to try take some kind of action? Surely not. Comfort me. Well. Yeah. There's um, a grandmother who is a ghost present mostly just as a grumbling figure of, you know, in my day, we, sure, we didn't do anything when the state said you have to do it, but we still thought about doing it, and you're not even thinking about doing something, daughter. And that's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. That, um, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, freedom, and, and what freedom means. I, I read the um, the big old 800-page Louis Manan book about, you know, culture in the Cold War. And, you know, talks he talks a lot about different people's different ideas of freedom and this sort of, like, yeah. existentialist idea that as long as you, you know, are, are, are authentically making a choice, then you're free. And it doesn't, you know, and, and Sartre even said you know, that they were never more free in Paris than they were under German occupation because during the German occupation, everything had meaning. You know, every and just, choice just you to be clear, Sartre is not saying meaning. that as a defense of uh, the German occupation of Paris. No, no, no. It is part of a critique of freedom. Right, right. But, but it's very but, funny. But, it's a very funny know, phrase. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it's funny too, because he really became, you know, he was written about in the press as, as if he'd been this great, hero of the resistance and 
not only was he not a particularly distinguished member of the resistance, but he was a significantly less distinguished member of the resistance than Camus. Yeah. Who was, yeah. Who was not written about in that way because he didn't want to be, you know, he didn't want to like use the resistance for his own publicity. But um, yeah. the, the, his, his signal act, Sartre's signal act uh, in the resistance was uh, during the kind of last battle uh, between you know the uprising of the partisans against the the Nazis that eventually retook the city, um, you know, with the knowledge that the Allies were you know very close by and would would be mm-hmm. able to back mm-hmm. them up, um, uh, he and some other friends went to go make sure that uh, nothing would happen to the Comedy Francais, uh, and and nothing did. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, I mean, what what can you do? Look, I'm I'm no hero. I'm not trying to say he's a short, dumpy playwright. He like was he was working as an intellectual and doing a decent job, being on the right side of history and convincing others to be so. Eh, What can you do? Yeah, but anyway, that that idea of like that inner freedom, you know, um. It's sort of compelling to me. I find it a very beautiful idea, uh, but it's ultimately a mystification. It's ultimately, yeah. you know, just an excuse to not fight for actual, you know, concrete, tangible freedom. Yeah, when, when freedom is a uh, freedom is if the freedom is located in the soul, then uh, and you are in an impossible situation where there is no beautiful choice to be made. Uh, in order to retain your beautiful soul, as Hegel says, you can only be free by isolating yourself from the world. Yeah. And I do think, you know, I think that there are circumstances that are kind of so hopeless that that's the only type of freedom that we can. And that that type of freedom, you know, like I'm thinking about, you know, the internal freedom of like slave religion during, uh, you know, the the period before the Civil War. And certainly that kept a a certain... um, you know, self-perception among uh, enslaved Africans that they were p- beings of great dignity and worth and that what was happening to them was unjust. Yes, you know? and, and I mean, of that, course that, that religion that was and... then immediately linked at a kind of conceptual long-term level and at a local tactical level uh, to periodic slave revolts as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I think it's important, you know, I mean... I don't want to. I don't want to sort of only valorize that because it led to the slave revolts. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's. I think it's both. And I think it's like both that created a culture of resistance that allowed for a Nat Turner, you know, or Denmark VC. But also, even in you know, most the vast majority of slaves until the Civil War never participated in the slave revolt, and yet I do think that there's there is a type of I don't know if I want to call it freedom, but there is a, a a a type of I don't know inner consolation that I. That's the I, word that I, I was about to say, and I didn't want to be too mean. But but if that's if consolation is the grounding of freedom, it I, I see very little utility in it. Yeah, there's a great moment in um, in uh, I think it's Roll Jordan Roll, uh, a history book about the experience mm. of enslaved people where um, some Northern visitor is like talking to an enslaved person about, you know, his idea of Christianity. And he kind of says, uh, you know, what are you, what are you going to do when you get to heaven and you see your master there in heaven? Oh, that's good. And the, and the slave goes, white people don't go to heaven. It's so good. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Um, should we read something else? Let's read, uh, a little bit from, so the second act is a, uh, what is it? A, it reads a, like documentary, a theater. mosaic. It's, it's documentary yeah. theater. It, uh, we are told in this scene in the way, in a way that we aren't, um, that none of the characters in this section are the players in the play that began in part one. They are all Romanian speaking to us in English with Romanian accents. Each behaves as if the others are not there and each is the only one telling what happened. 
and we, we are should told... all we should definitely do our Romanian accent. Oh, my, my Romanian accent have. is just a Russian accent. Unfortunately, like like it, it's tough. I I do not know the language well enough to distinguish between various. Romanian is actually a Romance language, which is why mine is a Mexican accent. That's great. That's great, and I think it's a cosmopolitan. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, it is the least changed from uh, Latin as it was pronounced in the Byzantine Empire uh, and the, um, the Roman Empire, obviously, the Western Roman Empire, uh, which uh, compared to French and Spanish and Italian, just because the Byzantine Empire uh, continued while the Western Roman Empire uh, fucked up too many times. Anyway, so I think that's too they, bad. The Byzantine Empire Latin, existed like until the 1400s. And were they speaking Latin then? They were speaking Greek primarily, but like Latin was a language of state. Huh. Yeah, it's kind of cool. And then I've heard that Greek was kind of not really used for a couple hundred years. Is that true? Uh, I believe it. After the Ottomans take over, it goes well. Mm. I don't know much about the longer history of Greek. Great. Um, yeah, it's hard to hard to pick you know, what part would be the best part of this to read? Uh, Let's just, let's just try, um, let's read the first page or so. And then the like page 29 uh, toward to the end. Okay. So painter, my name is Valentin Barbat. I am a painter. I hope to go to the art Institute. I like to paint horses, other things too, but I like horses on December 20. My girlfriend got a call, go to the palace square. People were wearing armbands for Timisoara. There were plenty of people, but no courage. Nothing happened that day, and we went home. My name's Natalie Moraru. I'm a student. On the 21st of December, I had a row with my mother at breakfast about something trivial, and I went out in a rage. It was nothing unusual. Some old men talking, a few plainclothes policemen. <laughs> they think they're clever, but everyone knows who they are because of their squashed faces. I'm Dimitru Konstantinescu. I work as a translator in a translation agency. On the 21st, we were listening to the radio in the office to hear Ceausescu's speech. It was frightfully predictable. People had been brought from factories and institutes on buses, and he wanted their approval for putting down what he called the hooligans in Timisoara. Then suddenly we heard boos, and the radio went dead. So we knew something had happened. We were awfully startled. Everyone was shaking. My name is Cornell Dragon. I am a student and I watched the speech on TV. The TV went dead. I was sure at least, at last something happens. So I go out to see. And that's, I think, a good place to stop. And then people go out to see. There is the the Carnation Revolution. And, and, and uh, I will say, you know, yes. the fact that people could just walk out of their apartments and join the revolution, it's just a testament to the type of livable walkable urbanism that we aspire to in the united states you know it's really just not possible with the highways that are constructed as as here in a civilized country it's possible to engage in a revolution every 30 40 years but uh we just love our parking lots too much yeah um and then uh stuff starts getting a little odd and people start getting shot and then uh we are told on the morning of the 23, I went home and I slept for two hours. I kept the gun with me in bed. Uh, page 29, uh, like yeah, a page before the end. Than you, but, but let me, uh, yeah, so okay. like then a girl student. Oh, yeah, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. I got cool. it. Okay. Uh, I was about to go out to defend my school when my grandmother began to panic and we thought she would have a heart attack. So I promised to stay in and I spent the day passing messages to people on the phone. Some people don't like me because of my father. The train didn't go down that day, so I stayed at home. I thought, this is not my town. I will go to my own town and act there. I stayed in the hospital without going home till the 28th. We had enough medicine for immediate cases. Once or twice, we had to use out-of-date anesthetic, and the patient woke up during the operation. Not often, but it happened. We had no coffee or food. When my husband came to see me, more than seeing him, I was pleased he had 30 packets of cigarettes. We ate what the patients left, and people brought some bread and some jam. So on Christmas Day, we had jam sandwiches. When I heard about the execution on the 25, I came at night with my father to the authorities to certify what I was doing during the event. I was detained three days by the army. 
then told to remain at home. I will say one thing. Until noon on the 22, we were law and order. We were brought up on this idea. I will never agree with an order. Everyone looks at me like I did something wrong. It was the way the law was then and the way they all accepted it. On the 25, we hear about the trial and their deaths. It is announced that people must return their weapons, so we go to the factory and give back our guns. On the 28, who had of the 28 who had guns, only four are alive. I stay home with my family till the 28th, then I go to work. They say the time I was home will be off my holidays. There is no more work on the People's Palace. Nobody knows if they finish it. Painting doesn't mean just describing. It's a state of spirit. I didn't want to paint for a long time. And that's the end of the second act. And the third act is it's, another it's a... wedding. The first act was kind of... A lot of the scenes were preparations for a wedding or depictions of a young couple. And the third act is Florina's wedding. Another wedding within the same family. Families. It's... You sorry, you were interrupted you? Or, Hello? Or do we, hi, yes. Do we want to talk about Act 2 first or do we want to read some of Act 3? Let's talk a little bit about Act 2. Yeah, it uh, it's interesting to be... Yeah, it's this is the scene that is like as if this is what we're seeing on CNN or the BBC. Yeah. Interviews spoken in English. Uh like that odd moment when you see a uh news co news coverage of a revolution in a non-speaking non-English speaking world and then suddenly there are signs in English and it will often take me a couple minutes to realize that oh they made that for me, not for themselves. Right. <laughs> oh shit they made they made it because they figured out that the camera was there shit yeah and there's like the the one aspect of it that i think is really interesting is how much people remember like this was this day and on this day this happened and that was and then the next day you know the next day the army comes over to the people or the next day the police start shooting or you know it's it's when you're in a kind of revolutionary moment, you know, I, to, to paraphrase Lenin, there are a weeks where a ton of shit happens. And then you remember each day as if it's like a whole different, you know, era of history. Yeah, um, weeks, uh, weeks where nothing happens and then days where weeks happen or whatever. Something like that. Uh, and everybody's a postman, a cook can be in charge of the government, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Um, his quotes yeah, had a lot, I, of, lot of people, a lot of I, something like that in them. That, uh, yeah. That's one criticism I have him as a pro exactly. style. Yeah. He's, he's, people always say this about Lennon. He's always hedging his bets. Uh, <laughs> so I feel like the only time I've ever experienced anything at all similar to this is like the kind of George Floyd uh, protests in June 2020. Sure. Um, yeah. It's like, oh, that Friday they used tear gas for the first time. And that's when it really and then and then that Saturday, that's when that police precinct burned down. And then uh, uh you yeah. know, that Sunday, that's when we took the bridge for the first time. And um it's it's still I mean, it has that sort of a sort of similar sense to this act where it's like, Did any of that even happen? You know, like yeah, I, it uh whenever I see uh people talk about how uh passive americans are it's like yep yeah, comparable to a lot of places but like th that that's within three years ago oh, guys yeah yeah massive uprisings in defense of the uh, the most exploited some of the most exploited people in this country yeah um, and the only way that stopped was by an immense uh mustering of military suppression which is still going on yeah the ruling, uh, the ruling classes are not comfortable with us yet. And uh, I don't know. We shouldn't be discounting their fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the sense in this, in this act, I, you know, I love the detail of the, the guy being like, they, 
they decided that the time that I was in the revolution would be deducted from my vacation days. Oh, good. It, yeah, that that's what happened. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, yeah. honestly, that's what happens if the revolution doesn't go far enough. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously the regime did fall, but, you know, to what extent were the were the kind of middle levels of the old regime able to just reconstitute themselves under the facade of democracy. That's a big, that's a big debate of the third act It's like, are these people just communists? You know, are these people just, you know, which is to say the old state apparatus Um, or is this, are they, is it genuine democracy? Um, You know, what would that even mean? Uh, a way that I get, uh, it's very easy. When I am defending the Soviet state as something, and Eastern European communism as something worth at least remembering and not dismissing entirely, uh, rent was capped at 10% of your income. Yeah. And like, I'm not saying that's worth the social contract that you live under, but I, I, will, I would take a lot of bullshit on the other le- side of the ledger. Yeah. Yeah. If it's possible for you to just have an okay life and raise a family, it takes, you know, about 40 years of bullshit and increasing calcification of the states and increasing corruption to I don't know, make it worth it for an individual person to go out in the streets. I do wonder too, like how much I would have been able to adapt myself, you know, as a playwright to the intense sorts of censorship that you had in Eastern Bloc countries. Um, I mean, you know, there were certainly people who were able, like there, there, there were people who, you know, were completely underground, like people like Václav Havel, you know, who never published anything that wasn't in Samizdat, but there were also you know, people like Bahumil Hrabel, who, you know, would publish Samistat editions that were unexpurgated versions of the censored versions that he published through the state. Then there are people like uh, Bulgakov, who for the last 30 years of his life just was not allowed to publish. He was uh, graciously allowed by the security state to work as a uh, work uh, as a stagehand. In the one of the Moscow theaters. Jeez. He wrote too many plays depicting the subjective experience of what it was like in the White Army, and uh, they were too humanizing, which is an interesting problem. Yeah. Though I think Stalin liked those plays, right? I think he personally yeah, was like, "Yeah, no, for sure, for sure." Yeah. I don't know. Like he Bulgakov wasn't sent to the camps. He was. Allowed right. to work as right. a stagehand. Right. That was something under Stalin. What it's kind gracious, of, you know, it always pisses me guy. off when there are these people, you know, who, you know, Stalin, I think, is like pretty easy to caricature, caricature as this just sort of like. Chuck eyes, I think, is, is what I usually end up with. Sure. Yeah. Uh, this sort of like uh, unfeeling buffoonish gangster. And it's like, ah, oh. oh, he knew a lot about classical music. Oh, I wish that weren't true. Or like, like, yeah, or like, like no. and, and like with the Stalinist critiques of the of Bulgakov, I, I personally find it much more damning when, uh, the person doing the bad thing actually is a conscious, reasonably intelligent person, mm-hmm. who has like, it was really bad to be in the White Army. Boy, these people, uh, were human beings doing horrible things. That's really monstrous. Much more monstrous than, I don't know, an unfeeling agent of corruption for corruption's sake and grasping power because they have an indomitable will to control all those around them. Stalin was a communist. We got to deal with that. Right, right. Um, have, Have you seen any of the, like, cultural revolution era model operas and model ballets. I haven't. I would love to and, and talk about some of them. They're 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 real fun. I mean, they're, the text is not great, but 
I mean, the people who are performing them are the the most highly trained performers in a country that had sure. at the time half a billion people. You know, so there right. are in, just amazing, in, incredible. Um, you know, and it's very clear watching them like, oh, right. The Chinese opera tradition is the tradition that birthed like Hong Kong Kung Fu movies, you know, mm-hmm. like the just acrobatics of the fight yeah. scenes are just totally... I mean, that's that's the other thing that like, yes, you will have to deal with a lot of state repression. But what's the other side of the social contract for artists? You will have uh, fully funded state schools where you can go and study the arts. Yeah. As long as you tell the right lines. Right. And until the line changes, right? Until then, the line changes, and you and then up. you get thrown out a window. Again, for following not saying this is a line. good system. I'm saying it's a social contract that uh, people didn't think was bad enough to go out and uh, revolt. I mean, that's why you gotta. You, you, we really have to. You know, we can't speak of the experience under communism as monolithic sure. because I think it's totally true. You know, every, every period from basically '68 to you know. 90 uh in the eastern Bloc, the rules were pretty clear it was pretty clear what you could and couldn't do and it was pretty clear what would happen if you got out of line and you know until solidarity there were really throughout the the whole 70s there weren't really any signs of thought and it was just kind of like boring and uh, i mean well with the exception of uh prague and uh right no i mean Oh, between well, 68 and 19. Yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Like there was, there were, there was a, you know, at least a decade where it was kind of just like, yeah, here's how you, here's how you do. Like, it was just kind of this like, you know, gray, boring, monotonous thing. Uh, but that wasn't true everywhere all the time. You know, yeah. there were time. there was, you know, I think even though, even though, you know, the 68 moment, the Prague spring uh, did get crushed. I think it's interesting that that was a reform movement from within the Czechoslovak communist party, you know, that Dubček was a communist, you know, uh, yeah. and so much so that he wasn't really invited back into the government, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in the nineties, even though he was still alive, you know, they, they brought him back in a sort of for, to do kind of ceremonial things, but he wasn't yeah. in the cabinet, you know? Um, I, I'd love to read scene three from the. What, what I'm saying is that oh, oh, the experience oh. of of a third of the, of the world over uh, you know sixty years uh, was not always the same everywhere. <laughs> yes, yeah, and like shouldn't just go unanalyzed as yeah. an old fashioned oh that's communist. Yeah. Shit, it, it's a third of humanity experimenting with ways to structure society in such a way that is different from liberal capitalism you're still wearing a high high waist jeans that's so communist danny that's so that's so communist i'm such a communist i'm such a communist i'm wearing shorts that go down past my knees what a fucking loser <laughs> man i see i i i sound I'm gonna sound so old when i say this but every time i walk around new york and i'm seeing like the way that teenagers are dressing i'm like both like what is that but also like that's just how we dressed like yeah. you're just doing us there there was a there was a, a really lovely conversation i read by some uh fashion con conscious zoomers about mm-hmm. uh just a how it it is very frightening to be dealing with the uh rapidity of fashion changes in the age of instagram and fast fashion where yeah. both have such enormous incentives to get people changing their clothes and buying an entirely new wardrobe every single day, every single at the most week. Um, but there's also the thing that as you go through that, the cycle of what becomes retro fashionable is also faster. Yeah. So stuff that was fashionable in the, I don't know, in 2008, can come back now rather yeah. than that being something that's fashionable for, I don't know, six months in a decade's time. It's fashionable. I don't know. Last month for uh, 20 minutes. <laughs> great. Great. We get a very, in the third act and thir- the third part, we get a wonderful, one of the do members of the, the vampire f- dog scene. I do. I do. <laughs> that's the first scene in the third act night outside a shrine a dog is lying asleep a man approaches he whistles the dog looks up the man whistles the dog gets up and approaches undecided between eagerness and fear the man is 
a vampire. Good like dog. Best stage don't direction be, ever. Good dog. Don't be frightened. <laughs> dog approaches, then stops, growls, retreats, advances, growls. No, 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 no. You can tell, of course. Yes, I'm not a human being. What does that matter? It means you can talk to me. Are you dead? No, no, I'm not, unfortunately. I'm undead and getting tired of it. I'm a vampire. You may not have met one before. I usually live in the mountains, and you look like a dog who lives on uh, scraps in the city. How old are you? <laughs> is this an Italian vampire? Yes! Italian is closer to Romania! Uh, five, six? You look older, but that's starvation. I'm over 500, but I look younger. I don't go hungry. Do you eat dogs? Ah, don't be frightened of me. I'm not hungry now. And if I was, all I do is sip a little of your blood. I don't eat. I don't care for dog's blood. People's blood? I came here for the revolution. I could smell it a long way off. I've tasted man's blood. It was thick on the road. I gobbled it up quick. Then somebody kicked me. Nobody knew who was doing the killing. I could come up behind a man in a crowd. Good times. There's been a lot of good times over the years. Not for me. Do you belong to anyone? I used to, but he threw me out. I miss him. I hate him. He probably couldn't feed you. He beat me, but now nobody talks to me. I'm talking to you. Will you keep me? No, I'm just passing the time. Please. I'm nice. I'm hungry. Vampires don't keep pets. You could feed me. Dog approaches vampire carefully. I have no money to buy food for you. I don't buy food. I put my mouth to a neck in the night. It's a solid tap. Get off! As the dog reaches him, he makes a violent gesture and the dog leaps away. Don't throw stones at me. I hate it when they throw stones. I hate being kicked. Please, please. I'd be a good dog. I'd bite your enemies. Don't hurt me. I'm not hurting you. Don't get hysterical. Dog approaches again. I'm hungry. You're kind. I'm your dog. Dog is licking his hands. Stop it. Go away. Go. Go. Go away. Dog slinks a little further off and approaches carefully. I'm your dog. Nice. Yes. Your dog. Yes. You want me to make you into a vampire? A vampire dog? Yes, please. Yes, yes. It means sleeping all day and going about at night. I'd like that. Going about looking like anyone else. Being friendly. No one knowing you. I'd like that. Living forever. You've no idea. All I... that happens is you begin to want blood. You try to put it off. You're bored with killing, but you can't sit quiet. You can't settle to anything. Your limbs ache. Your head burns. You have to keep moving faster and faster. That eases the pain. Seeking and finding. Ah. Now it just sounds like Nandor from what we do in the shadows. Yeah, of course. That's that's a big touchstone too. It's great. I like that. Yeah, Mario and Nandor. Yeah, somewhere between <laughs> the two. <laughs> and then it's over, and you wander around looking for someone to talk to. That's all. Every night, over and over. You can talk to me. I can talk to you. I'm your dog. Yes, if you like. I don't mind. Come here. Good dog. Vampire puts his mouth to the dog's neck. That's the end of the scene. So I, we only have a couple of minutes left, but that scene I love, and it seems to be an allegory. Um, but I'm not quite like is if the dog is the revolution, or the dog is the Romanian people, or the vampire is, or the Romanian poor. And the vampire. Well, so here's the thing that, I mean, yeah, that's probably one of the big things. The other way it connects is that, what, the vampires come from Transylvania, farther inland in the mountains. We also then have a family. The, the One of the families that is uh, getting married is from, one of the girls is from a well-to-do family of an engineer. And the her husband that she's marrying is the son of a... Uh, a building tradesman who comes from a peasant family. And so they have a trip out in the countryside to visit his grandparents. And over there, we see the grandparents being very suspicious of an adopted boy from Hungary, whose family, it seems, died in the revolution. Mm -hmm. And we also see them being very fucked up about gypsies 
someone yeah. who's been to America, a very funny moment where, uh, oh, everyone in America says, you shouldn't be talking like that about the gypsies, but you don't understand. You guys hate the blacks and the immigrants and the gypsies are just like them. They thief steal all the time. They don't do anything. They just take tax dollars. It's just yeah. the same. I remember when somebody in China told me, um, not all Uyghurs are terrorists, but all terrorists are Uyghurs. It's, it's pretty funny. It's it, <laughs> like, oh no, racism is a universal human problem. Yeah, yeah. It's really rough when a country, like the uh, uh, a non-liberal country decides that it does have to make some concessions to liberalism. And one of the concessions is being a part of the global war on terror. I don't know that you can chuck that up to concessions to liberalism. I mean, I think that's, I don't know. I mean, they're, it's, part they're the nationalist... it's part of the liberal project, my friend. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, it also has to do with, with nationalism and, 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 you know. Yeah, uh, it, this is, of course, one of the concessions. State coherence. This is one of the concessions to Western liberal international order that um, a nationalist state project can make very easily without um, screwing up its own social compact too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really think that's the that's the the thing that people don't talk about when they talk about the Uyghurs is like the Uyghurs are a, a population that has a, you know, pretty bold and sometimes violent independence movement. You know, it's 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 not like that. They're just this, you know, this group that's being persecuted only because of their religion or their ethnicity. Like they also are a separate nation and they're trying to form a separate nation state, you know, so. um you know, there is, which I don't say to excuse, you know, the actions of the Chinese uh, government, but I do say to kind of try to extend some idea of agency to to the Uyghurs because, yeah, there's, that's, you know, uh, China is a plurinational state, but that is ruled by one of its nationalities. And I think that's part of the tension that, that is yeah. going on in Uyghurstan is that, you know, the Uyghurs don't have you know, any real access to the levers of power uh, because they're a national minority and, you know, they might get trotted out at the Olympic ceremony. But if you look at, you know, who's actually uh, controlling things in the upper levels of the party, it's all people who are Han, you know? Yeah. And whether you want to call that racism or something else, it's certainly, you know, a form yeah, of like, it, it political can't, it can't and economic be reduced, discrimination. Uh, it can't be reduced simply to um, Islamophobia. Yeah. Um, I gotta go. I got a meeting in four minutes. Any final thoughts? Um, yeah. Uh, this play is just so much better and more interesting than it has any right to be, you know, given that it was written like while the events were unfolding and, and is, is both, you know, appropriately critical of the Romanian communist regime and appropriately skeptical of the kind of boosterism of the West. Uh, I mean, especially here's, 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 here's a closing thought. The like closing scene and the kind of the conflict of the third act, we get this trip out to the mountains to see the peasants. And we see a little bit of the bigotry of the peasants towards the Hungarians and the, uh, and the suspicion of gypsies. And then we go back and we get a wedding sequence uh, which is really lovely that as people get more alcohol, a fight breaks out between a party of between the building tradesmen and basically everybody else uh, fighting everybody else where the building tradesmen is supporting uh, the peasants party that is supporting land for the peasants and uh, getting all these fucking foreigners out there. Yes, we hate the communists, but we also hate the fucking CIA. Uh, that sounds not dissimilar at moments to the kind of conservatism that is currently in charge of Hungary and Poland. Yeah. And then like, what is the thing that's fighting back against it? It's uh, no, you should trust these group of people who have taken none of the true believers from the communists, but all of the corrupt middlemen who were keeping that state afloat and decided they could get a better bargain from the Americans. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, a fight breaks out and then we get a lovely last scene. Uh, uh, Hey, we are at the wedding. We should be dancing. And then every partner is dancing and speaking some of their lines from the play 
Uh, but this time they're speaking their Romanian uh, version. And the vampire is dancing with the angel, which I find sweet. And then uh, the closing image that I think is worth holding here is a book that Anne Applebaum, an anti-communist historian and conservative who's married to a former conservative uh, Polish uh, parliamentarian. I think he was in a government in the 90s in a ministerial post. She published a book during Trump, I think in 2019, about that, like the big kind of image in that book is remembering a party that she had with a bunch of Polish friends that she had during the fall of communism and how wonderful it was to be having all these freedom-loving people around a table together. And then looking back on it, 20 years on, so it was in 99, 20 years on, all of them are fascists, and she just can't figure out what happened in the intervening years. <laughs> oh, no. And it's just like, and, and and they were fascists then, and you're you're base you're if not a fascist, you are perfectly willing to work with fascists. <laughs> there isn't a contradiction here. Yeah. Well, that's a great note to end on. Talk to you yeah. next time, Danny. It's great. Happy meeting. Bye. Bye.